Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fivoli, Staff Actuary Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Today we'll be continuing our look at the CIA publication entitled Enterprise Risk Management 2019, The New Wave of Risks, which is a collection of articles and essays related to ERM. Our featured essay today is entitled Legalization of Cannabis and the Effects on the Life Insurance Tree in Canada. Joining me is the author of this essay, CIA member Lloyd Milani. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here, Chris. So as I mentioned off the top, this essay is one of a series of articles on the new wave of enterprise risk management risks. So how exactly does cannabis fit into all of this? I think part of it is the status quo change, right? So before it was illegal, now it's legal. So now are we expecting behaviors to change uh, in terms of usage? And then even given that it's more easily accessible, you would think that more people would be using it. The other thing that in the past, because it was illegal, I think this sounds odd, but it almost sounds like we almost ignored this issue. I mean, we would ask questions on apps about marijuana and other drug use, but other than cocaine, I mean, if there was a, a reason why we thought somebody would be using it, there would be further testing. But marijuana, generally, we asked the question, but there was no really further testing to see whether somebody smoked it or not. So from that aspect, I think some of this is already buried into what we do day to day, but it's one of those things that I think it just became heightened because now it's legal, and now there's a potential for a lot more people to use it. And the other thing is, it impacts both the life and non-life. Obviously, on the life side, there's the short-term and long-term effects of marijuana use, but on the non life side, there's a risk of increased impaired driving because of this, or there's maybe other legal liability issues associated with marijuana. If you think just about the manufacturers or the growers, is there going to be some kind of class action lawsuit 20 years from now because there's a cohort in the population that has had a bunch of health issues that weren't really disclosed at the time the product was sold? Okay, so a lot of terminology around this issue. We hear references to cannabis, marijuana, THC, CBD, are these just different words for the same thing? What, what's the distinction between them? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I think marijuana and cannabis are essentially the same. One is more the Latin name for the plant, and then within that naming convention, there's going to be some other subnames for particular strains of the plant. The actual name marijuana, I looked this up. There's a couple of possible different origins. One is from the Chinese for hemp seed flower, and then another one, it seemed to appear in the 1930s. It was uh, apparently invented by the commissioner of the Bureau of Narcotics in the 1930s in the U.S., and they chose to use a Spanish-sounding name in order to make the drug sound, I want to say, evil or different. And in that way, it would kind of drive people away from it. Then I think you asked about CBD and THC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so one, they're found in slight, in different strains of the same plant. So CBD is, doesn't make you high, but it still controls pain, anxiety, insomnia, and it's found in the hemp plant. And then THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinoid gives you the high, gives you the euphoria, and it also controls pain. And that's found in the classic marijuana plant. But it's essentially one is hemp, which doesn't have the THC, and the other one is the marijuana, which is the one that gives you the high. The actual formulas of these two compounds are the same. They're made up of 21 carbons, 30 hydrogens. The only difference is how they're arranged in this molecular structure. I think a lot of organic compounds are like this, where they have the exact same formula, but just the way they're twisted and they're arranged actually gives you a very different impact or affects you differently. And then both of them are oils that can be extracted from the leaves. 
Okay, well, at the time of recording, we're almost at the one-year anniversary for the legalization of cannabis in Canada. Has the use of cannabis increased since that legalization, and do you think it'll increase in the future? So initially, when I wrote this, and my hypothesis was you probably would see a bump initially because there would be a bunch of people that there now because it's legal, they just feel, okay, let me just try it. And then after that, it goes back to the normal use. So I ended up, I think in the paper, we had data up to Q4 2018. If you go to the StatsCan website, they've updated it to Q2 2019. So if you just look at Q3 18, which is before legalization, and compared to Q2 19, there is a slight bump, about a percent increase in use in Canada. But if you actually look fourth quarter, which is when it was legal, it actually only went up slightly. First quarter of 2019, there was actually a two percentage point increase from the previous quarter. And then now when we compare first quarter, second quarter, it drops a bit. Uh, by a percent. And if you actually look by province, it's all over the map. Alberta seems to be the biggest increase and it's been sustained. Ontario had a big increase in the first quarter of 2019. And that might actually be tied to the living in Ontario here, the news, but it sounded like there was a supply problem for sure in Ontario. I don't know about the other provinces, but it looked like Q4 when it was legal, it barely boomed up. Q1 of 19, there was a 5% jump. And then in Q2, it went back down to about 17%. By age, again, it's a little bit all over the map. The younger ages seem to have increased. The older ages actually have decreased. Given how this data is collected, you have to put a little bit of a grain of salt on this. It's probably going to jump around. I have four points here. You probably need to see this over a two or three year period to really see if there's any real trends that are occurring. Yeah, you're right. I think it's still very early days. One of the things we hear about cannabis, as opposed to harder drugs like cocaine and heroin, for example, is that it does not have addictive properties. So is that true, or can cannabis use lead to some forms of addiction? Well, I think all compounds or anything that you take could be addictive, right? Sugar is addictive. Caffeine is addictive. It's whether it's physical or whether it's psychological. And I'm by no means an expert here. And I think when you research this, it's not always clear whether it's physical or psychological, but it seems that the information that I've looked at is marijuana tends to be more psychological, whereas a drug like heroin, that's physical. I mean, if you actually just go cold turkey on on heroin, you, you could die if you don't have medical attention. Whereas you can go cold turkey on marijuana, you'll be uncomfortable for a couple of weeks and you'll easily live through it. When I looked up cocaine, it's apparently psychological and not physical but there again i'm not an expert on this so it's i don't want to say don't worry about it take it because it's not going to impact you i mean the one thing though about cannabis but it does seem to impact younger minds than it does older minds so if you start smoking it as a teenager it might have an impact that you won't necessarily have if you start smoking in your 20s or 30s Mm -hmm. yeah interesting i think uh, i've certainly seen that in some instances i'm not surprised to hear that Okay, so let's get to some of the stuff that uh, actuaries would be interested in. What can you tell us about the mortality experience of cannabis users? Is it closer to smoker experience, non-smoker, somewhere in between? What do we know so far? So far, not much. There's very little information out there, and what there is, I actually wouldn't classify as necessarily good studies or studies that actuaries would necessarily be used to and trying to price a product or value their business. There's one study that was referred to in the article. What They were following a couple thousand people in New Zealand from birth to about mid-30s 
and at a certain points in time, they would look at their health status, collect some information, and at the same time, try to collect lifestyle type information. The problem with those studies is because they're not collecting the data constantly and they're just doing these types of surveys and asking you what you did, you're asked to, one example, let's say what you ate, right? I mean, if you have to try to fill out a survey of what you ate over the last year, it's going to be completely wrong. So it's the same thing, let's say, with marijuana use or alcohol use, you put something down and it won't be 100% representative of what you actually did. The other problem I think with these type of studies are people will tend to lie because they don't want to show they've done the bad stuff, both from a food perspective. They don't want to say that they've been eating at McDonald's for the last week. They'll say that they had the whole foods and the good foods. Same thing with probably marijuana and alcohol. They'll probably tend to underestimate what they've done or they'll just actually completely deny that they've they've used it. So I think there has to be a lot of care when you start using those type of studies that are currently available. I think that the onus is going to be on the industry to start collecting the data, understand who's a smoker, who isn't and then ultimately over time it's going to take a while right i mean it's not going to be instantaneous but over a certain point of time is, is see if there's any trends that are occurring from a mortality perspective once we start to isolate this cohort mm-hmm. okay yeah i agree it sounds like it might be too early to make any definitive conclusions one thing i was curious about it and again we may not have the data at this point but i was wondering if you've seen anything about the delivery method having any impact on mortality and i'm thinking specifically of smoking versus edibles is there anything out there that talks about that uh no even that there's hardly anything but just from a intuition standpoint you would think that edibles should be safer than smoking because when you smoke something you're basically heating up a bunch of chemicals and they're going to change and then you're, you're taking them into your lungs right so whereas an edible your body would just absorb the pure compound but even that i'm not sure i've actually heard even with an edible I mean, it could be dangerous because it's a lot easier to take in a lot more of a dose than if you were to smoking somebody have said it's the difference between sipping a beer or doing shots right you may actually have the same amount of alcohol in both of them but you can easily get drunk a lot faster with a shot than if sipping a beer over an hour. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let, let's turn back to the insurance application now. Uh, I'm just curious, can you tell us how have insurance underwriters traditionally treated cannabis use? And now that it's legal, has that changed the way they approach it in the underwriting process? Yeah. So I had to dig through a bunch of uh, underwriters' minds for this uh, who've been around for a while. It sounds like about 15 to 20 years ago, we've always asked the question, if it was declared marijuana users were treated as smokers with a rating, so typically a uh, plus 50. About 15 years ago, that changed, and the industry became a little bit less conservative, and they just treated marijuana users as smokers without a rating. And then in about 2015-16, the industry kind of switched, and they ended up going and treating uh, marijuana users as non-smokers. The one thing that they did do, though, at that point, if it was marijuana, and it was occasional users, like it would have been like two or three joints a week, and more than that, typically, they would rate there's other health issues associated with it. So if, if somebody's taking medical marijuana and because they have health issues that they're dealing with, then in that situation there, they would uh, end up probably being a non-smoker with some rating or, or the rating associated with the underlying disease. The other thing that they're 
concerned about today as well is if there's any mental health issues associated with its use, especially anxiety, because there may be other things associated with that uh, they need to dig into. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the biggest risks you mentioned in the essay is trying to deal with uh, the unknowns or soft data on cannabis use. And I think we touched about this in one of the earlier questions, but can you just go back and maybe tell us a bit more what you mean by soft data and what can insurers do to improve their knowledge in this area? Yeah. So, I mean, soft data is that type of study that I described. Is, uh, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, the epidemiological study. So essentially, they follow a cohort of people over a certain period of time. They tend to do surveys or they tend to measure certain things, and then they do some type of correlation studies or association studies on the data. Those studies tend to provide you with, let's say, correlations or or associations with certain things, but they don't necessarily give you enough information that you have to be totally conclusive. And and that's just, if you want to be something conclusive, you have to have a a randomized control trial where basically you're trying to come up with two groups who are randomized and they're supposed to, by doing that, you're, you're really trying to make the two groups effectively the same, they have the same qualities. One, you would get them to smoke marijuana for, you know, 10 years and the other one you wouldn't. Obviously, that's going to be almost impossible to do in a control situation, but that's the type of study that you really need in order to get definitive answer of whether marijuana has any long-term negative impacts. I think from an insurance standpoint or the industry standpoint, I think I mentioned this in the article, we have to start collecting data. Just ask question. If somebody is smoking marijuana, if they do, then just track it. And, and then at some point in time, we'll be able to at least do a study where you would be able to isolate this cohort of smokers. At the same time, you would also want to know how much they smoke, right? Like, is it once a month, twice a month? Is it once a week, five times a week? So at least now you can even get some, some indication of whether the quantity has any impact. And the other thing that we can do is as well, and this piece here, I can see companies kind of balking at this and because it might impact the policyholder experience or the relationship, but asking, let's say, more of these questions at claim time, not because you're going to deny it, but just more of just to collect the information. Again, so at the time that they die, you basically ask the beneficiary or whoever's claiming that this person smoked marijuana. And at least now you have two points in time where there was information at the beginning and some information at claim time, and maybe we can start using that data to come up with a real assessment of the risk. There have been a few uh, news items lately talking about illnesses and in some cases deaths resulting from vaping activity and some of those involve THC that we talked about earlier which is a compound that's found in cannabis and they think that may play a role in these mishaps. Do you think incidents like these are going to change insurers views about cannabis use going forward? Um, I think this is a bigger issue for the non-life side than it is for the life side. So for vaping, if somebody vapes now, they're just treated as a, a smoker, especially if it's a, a nicotine product. I mean, they, when you go through the testing, it, um, if you have cotton in your blood, basically you, you'll be issued a smoker policy. But I see these type of incidences as there, there's something wrong with the product. There's a manufacturing problem or there's something acute, right? So if you see your friend go in the hospital and, and be in a coma because of the, the vaping, you probably will start thinking twice whether you want to do it or not. So it might actually prevent people from using it. Maybe go back to the old ways. I think the biggest problem, at least from a life insurance perspective, 
it's not so much these kind of short-term issues where you kind of see something happen right away because they tend to be fixed is more the long-term right so even if you're vaping a non-nicotine flavored product like what is the long-term impact of that nobody knows and likely nobody nobody's doing any studies on it Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a bit, I'm a bit outside my area of expertise here, but uh, I understand that there are synthetic types of marijuana that are out there, which can be quite dangerous if they're not uh, if they're not used properly. So, you know, that may be part of the the issue that we've seen. Yeah, I, I mean, it probably goes back to this. It, it may look like THC from a, a compound's perspective, but it, depending on the, that sh- the shape of that molecule, it may behave completely different. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think that that's the piece that the, these type of synthetics might drive. Like it, it's it's just even though it looks the same, it's a completely different compound, or it acts differently. Yeah. All right. So today we have cannabis legal in Canada. There are some that may speculate that this could put us on a slippery slope to a point where more illicit drugs become legalized. So from the perspective of an ERM practitioner, you worry about future risks. Is this something that's on your radar screen right now? So this is purely my opinion. It has nothing to do with, with Munich. I just feel the less government involvement in these type of issues, the better. I'm an adult. I should be able to choose what I consume. The thing is, this is the piece. And I, and I think the, the other thing that goes along with illegal drugs is a lot of other illegal activity. Crime and going to you know hear all the gun crime that's going on in Toronto over the last year. Or so I, that's tied to the drug market for sure. It has to be right. So if you make drugs legal, then there's no more reason why that crime should exist. There may be some other types of crime, but this violent type of crime I think will be greatly reduced. So on one hand, there's going to be benefits from it, but I can actually see if you now take this away and make it a lot cheaper, a lot accessible, you're going to have certain personality types that are just going to drive themselves into the ground because they're using this and it might have some other impact from a medical perspective in the sense now that they're going to use a lot more of the universal health care that's provided in Canada than would have been used before. Right, So I think that's the type of thing that we have to be worried about. Ultimately, though, I doubt it'll happen, first of all. And I, th- I think part of it is there's a, lot of, there's a lot of money at stake everywhere. I mean, not only on the illegal side of the business, I think even on, on the, you want to call it the, the governmental or the legal part of kind of controlling these drugs, there's a lot of government agencies that are involved. And if you all of a sudden take that task or that economic activity away, there's going to be a lot of people out of work. And there's going to be a lot of money that um, is not going to be circulating anymore. So from, from that aspect, I think there, there's a lot of people that are going to be pushing to make sure that this stays uh, illegal for a long time. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll have to see where that goes. All right, well, this has been an interesting conversation. I'm sure we could talk for another half hour on this issue, but uh, we'll wrap things up now. So thanks once again for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, no, thank you. I uh, really appreciate uh, you asking me, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to talk about something else in the future again. All right, very good. You can see this and other essays in the Enterprise Risk Management 2019 series on the CIA website. I'm Chris Fivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk. 